She'd almost held an arrow to his jugular yesterday in the park and insisted he confess to killing Helen Emerson. And if he admitted to the crime, she could have pushed that same arrow through his windpipe with no compunction. But as they spoke, something about his grief, clearly deep despite his attempts at humor, had stopped her. She'd told him the details of Helen's death to see his reaction, and he seemed genuinely horrified. She never shied from punishing men if the victim identified them, or if she herself saw the crime committed, but a long-ago tragedy had taught her not to rely solely on hearsay or circumstantial evidence, and with Schultz, that's all she had. Friend of the victim, expert in ancient Greek, loiterer at the crime scene. She needed to be patient if she wanted to find proof of his involvement, to stalk her prey a little longer before moving in for the kill. It took only a few minutes before another tenant left Schultz's building. Celine held the door for her with the warmest smile she could muster, then slipped nonchalantly inside. She wished she could get into Helen Emerson's building with such ease. When she'd swung by earlier that morning, cop cars lined the block, and officers trooped in and out the front door. Celine had no choice but to let the police investigate the victim while she pursued the suspect. In her backpack, she'd stowed all the tools she might need for this little adventure. It felt good using her old skills again. In her time in exile, she'd been a cop, a bodyguard, a naturalist, and, briefly, an assassin. And that was just the beginning of the list. She donned a pair of gloves and used her picks to jimmy his door open. Schultz hadn't bothered with high-security locks. Maybe he was naive enough to think he'd never get robbed. Celine had three different locks on her own door. It wouldn't do to have a burglar discover the God-forged golden bow in her closet. The door swung open with a creak, revealing a large studio apartment with a living and dining area separated from the bedroom by a folding screen. The room was clean, but far from neat. Books and papers littered every surface, like an ancient library pillaged by Visigoths. Celine moved to a small dining table, completely covered by tall stacks of papers. She picked up the first, a student's essay on the Odyssey, and thumbed through. The professor's red ink emendations lay between the printed lines, streamed down the bottom of the page, curled into the side margins, and continued onto the back. Finally, a scrawled C+, accompanied by yet another comment. Impressively meta, you've taken a tortuous journey of Odyssean proportions before arriving at your point. But next time, don't bury your thesis statement on page 10. Celine checked the other papers, all similar palimpsests of black text and red ink. It must have taken the professor an hour to grade each one. Next to the papers lay a stack of lecture notes. She skimmed the first few pages with a raised eyebrow. Someone who actually thinks the gods have something to contribute to the modern world, she thought, impressed. But as she kept reading, she grew disheartened. I see. Myths are man-made creations, not to be taken literally, but to be torn apart and dissected and put back together. They're all about human civilization, because of course humans are the center of everything.
such arrogance. She looked at the anthologies of myths lining the bookshelves. Within their pages lay the history, the loves and losses, the deepest secrets of beings far removed from mere mortals, if only the professor knew to look. But she had to admit, Schultz was right about one thing. The line between fiction and reality was never clear, not even for her. Like all the gods, she had little control over her pre-diaspora memories. Artemis had existed more as a metaphor than as a maiden. Her very reality shaped by the tales poets told of her